Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. My name is Bronwyn Winter and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, which is 8.55 on your AM dial. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. You are listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. This is Carol Adams, author of The Sexual Politics of Peace. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. I'm speaking to Professor Elaine Hunt-Botting about Hannah Matha Crocker. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm honoured to be here. Now, could you give us some background information about yourself? Of course. I studied philosophy at Bowdoin College in Maine and then at Cambridge University, And after Cambridge, I switched gears to focus on political theory in my doctoral program at Yale University, and I'm now a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, where I teach courses on feminist theory, human rights, and the humanities more broadly. So what was it that inspired you to study Hannah Matha Crocker? I became interested in the American tradition of women's rights advocacy in graduate school at Yale. Professor Roger Smith taught a course on American political thought in which we read women's rights advocates such as Sarah and Angelina Grimke, Catherine Beecher, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. I was struck by how these women made arguments strikingly similar to Mary Wollstonecraft the Anglo-Irish women's rights advocate who published the first internationally renowned treatise on women's rights, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, in London in 1792. After I completed my dissertation on Wollstonecraft, Burke, and Rousseau's theories of the family, I moved on to study the question of Wollstonecraft's philosophical impact on 19th century American women's rights advocates. Among those women that I discovered were pupils of Wollstonecraft, to use the phrase of Abigail Adams, was Hannah Mather Crocker and her landmark book, Observations on the Real Rights of Women. I was shocked to learn that the author of America's first book-length philosophical treatise on women's rights was almost unknown, even in feminist scholarship. In fact, one of the only scholars to have highlighted Crocker's achievement in writing the first book on women's rights in the American tradition was Roger Smith, my teacher in graduate school. Okay, so can you give us some background information about Hannah Matha Crocker? Crocker was born in 1752 near North Square in Boston's North End neighborhood. Uh, Her family home on Moon Court is just around the corner from Paul Revere's house, which of course still stands and is a tourist attraction to the present day. And she also lived right around the corner from the Second Church of Boston, which was the Congregationalist Puritan Church of her forefathers, Increase in Cotton Mather. Her grandfather, Cotton Mather, was very famous for his involvement in the Salem witch trials. 
Her mother was a Hutchinson. She was the sister of the royal governor of Massachusetts in the run-up to the American Revolution. And so Crocker had loyalist ties through that wing of the family. Her father was a Mather. Her father was the son of Cotton Mather, the famed Puritan minister. And her father was also a supporter of the revolutionary cause. Crocker's own political sympathies were squarely on the side of the revolutionary patriots. In her Reminiscences and Traditions of Boston, which I co-edited and published for the first time in a scholarly edition with Sarah L. Hauser, Crocker describes herself as a revolutionary patriot who smuggled papers across the Charles River from her father to General Howe. This story may have been inflated for effect by the elderly Crocker, who wrote her reminiscences in the 1820s when she was in her 60s, but the symbolic point is clear. Young women of the revolutionary generation were more than capable of taking up the tasks of Republican citizenship, including putting their safety on the line for the sake of preserving the flame of liberty that had swept over the American colonies after enduring the increasingly oppressive and unfair trade taxation policies of the British since the mid-18th century. Crocker consistently represented herself and other women as capable and deserving of citizenship. She also suggested, in sometimes subtle prose, that to deny women's full citizenship was to delegitimate the American Republic and its roots in the revolutionary struggle for equal rights and liberty for each and all. What were Hannah Matha Crocker views on sex equality and human nature? Because she was raised a Congregationalist in the Puritan tradition, Crocker viewed all souls as equal and made in the image of their rational God, whose universal and rational moral law they were obliged to follow. Her father, Samuel Mather, was dismissed from the Second Church of Boston and founded a new Congregational church that eventually became the home of the Universalist Church in Boston. His theological views were more in line with the rationalism of the later Puritan tradition than the evangelical strand of Congregationalism that had emerged in Boston in the run-up to the Revolution. I think Crocker's own unique theology, which she preserved in manuscripts held by American Antiquarian Society, was deeply influenced by her father's rationalism as well as her affiliation with the Masonic movement in Boston. She was involved in founding the first female lodge for women in Boston, if not the United States, St. Anne's Lodge. Not, mo- not much is known about it beyond her publication of several poems concerning its activities and ideals in Boston newspapers in the 1780s and 1790s. I was able to confirm, however, her publication of these poems by examining the contents of the appendix of her reminiscences with those published in Boston newspapers at the time period. What I find really compelling about Crocker is the way in which she blended orthodox congregationalist theological beliefs with the more rationalistic principles of Freemasonry. And she used this unique blend of congregationalism and free mason ideas towards feminist acts. Would you say that Crocker was a rhetorical strategist? Yes. Together with Sarah L. Hauser, one of my former doctoral students, I argued in a 2006 article 
in the American Political Science Review that Crocker, like many women of the early 19th century, used rhetorical strategies to subtly and cleverly engage the controversial question of women's rights in the post-revolutionary era. Uh, something we can relate to today in the age of Me Too, perhaps. In the post-revolutionary era, especially the Napoleonic era, the question of women's rights was often run underground and lacked the highly visible public profile it enjoyed in the heady days of the American and French revolutions. In this context, one example of a rhetorical strategy was Crocker's apparent claim in her observations on the real rights of women that women should not, quote, ascend the rostrum to make public speeches. When one reads her closer, her language reveals itself to be quite ambiguous. It seems that she is not so much claiming that women should not make public speeches, but rather that women are constrained to some degree by norms of feminine propriety with regard to their public political actions, including speech. In other words, women have to maneuver within the norms of femininity as they make strategic decisions about public political speech. When we read this passage from the observations in light of Crocker's own preservation of manuscripts, of sermons, and other speeches that she herself gave in the 1810s to support causes such as the founding of a school for poor girls in Boston or to protest the injustice of the War of 1812, then we see that Crocker did not object to women's public speaking per se, but rather modeled through her writing and other political actions how women could and should strategically deploy speech and other political actions in relation to sometimes oppressive norms of femininity, paradoxically capitalizing on those norms by subtly subverting them through brave and smart acts of public resistance to gender-based oppression. What were Crocker's views on education? She advocated for equal educational opportunities for men and women beginning in childhood. She liked Walsh and Krauss' views of education, but she was not as committed to co-education or public education as Wollstonecraft was. Crocker rather emphasized the need for the content of education to be the same, but she didn't stress the need for the form of education to be the same for the sake of advancing gender equality. To get a sense of the range of educational forms she supported, we can look at her life. She was homeschooled amidst the famed Mather Family Library, now housed in the American Antiquarian Society, a priceless collection of theological and historical books. She praised her friend, the freed slave and African-American poetess, Phyllis Wheatley as a largely self-taught prodigy. She helped found a vocational school for poor girls in the 1810s. She welcomed the rise of public schools in Boston that effectively replaced her vocational school once it closed in 1819. There is no record of her or the other women involved in founding the School for Poor Girls, opposing its closure or the growth of public schooling in Boston thereafter. It seems that Crocker was fine with religious and secular education, public and private education, co-educational and single-sex forms of education for children, as long as the genders, classes, and races had equal access 
to a high-quality level of educational content with a special focus on science and literature, uh, which I think she drew from her association with the Freemason movement, which placed a high value on all members' exposure to cutting-edge trends in science and literature. Do you think that Crocker's religious beliefs shaped her views? Absolutely. Being the granddaughter of of Cotton Mather, (laughs) Hannah Mather Crocker couldn't help but be shaped by her her religious background and beliefs. I think she was a sincere Christian believer, although some of her theological views were unique and perhaps even unorthodox. She she never renounced association with the Congregationalist tradition, remained squarely within it, but adopted a tolerant uh, view towards other Christian religious traditions that emerged in Boston during the late 18th century and became institutionalized there. And so I think she ended up somewhere between the Congregationalist and the Unitarian tradition, theologically speaking. And I think that somewhat unorthodox gloss she placed on um, congregationalism allowed her to develop a feminist political theory, which is also interestingly unorthodox and is hard to categorize. Some people have typically, some people have read her as a conservative or even an anti-feminist. I think this is a misinterpretation of her thought, and, and in that kind of misinterpretation of her thought can be avoided if we read her political theory in the context of her rather complex religious background. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Elaine Hunt-Botting about Hannah Mather Crocker. It was interesting that you mentioned that even in academic circles that she was fairly unknown. Why do you think that that is when some women in history are fairly unknown and other women like Wollstonecraft and de Beauvoir rise to such fame? Yeah, it's a great question. In Crocker's case, I think one reason why she's not well known, despite this year being the bicentennial of her, the publication of her landmark work, Observations on the Real Rights of Women, the first book on women's rights published in the American tradition, is that her book, The Observations, was published in Boston in a rather limited print run. And so it was, it was sold and distributed in Boston. Uh, it was printed by the author, however. She must have conscripted one of her friends to publish it for her. We don't know how many copies were distributed. We know that it was uh, advertised in newspapers in New York, Boston, and around New England, including New Hampshire and Vermont. So we know that it was a book that was um, sold and distributed and read in the wake of its publication in 1818. But we also know that it didn't travel well beyond that juncture. There's some evidence of later women's rights advocates, including those in the black feminist tradition, paying heed to Crocker and referencing her in their writings in the early to mid-19th century. But these are fairly rare. 
And I think that's due to the limited print run. Now, later in the 19th century, when the feminist movement gained steam in the United States, Elizabeth Cady Stanton mentioned Hannah Mather Crocker in her History of Women's Suffrage, but she was rather dismissive of Crocker. She represented Crocker as conservative, not fully supportive of the full slate of women's rights that she and Susan B. Anthony supported in that time period. Now, while that is technically true, it is also true that almost no one (laughs) advocated for women's suffrage, say, prior to 1840. (laughs) There are very few women in the American tradition who did so. You don't see the rise of arguments for women's suffrage until after about 1840 in the United States. Now, the British tradition is a little different because Mary Wollstonecraft, of course, did support women's suffrage and her vindication of the rights of women, albeit in a rhetorically subtle way. So even she doesn't directly advocate for women's suffrage, but rather kind of suggests in a witty way that uh, women ought to have the right to vote for their own representatives in the parliament. So Crocker, in that context, doesn't look so much like an outlier, but rather part of a broader political context that was quite repressive with regard to women's rights. And therefore, we might expect women to be less forthright or direct about their claims for women's rights. So I don't find it surprising that Crocker never directly or specifically advocated for women's suffrage. And I don't even take that as evidence, conclusive evidence, that she didn't think women should vote. I think there's actually a lot of indirect evidence in her writings that she thought women should be full-blown citizens alongside men and that American democracy would never be legitimate until that moment took place. So I think there's a real irony in Katie Stanton's reception of Crocker. I think she had a little bit of anxiety of influence. I think that she probably was a bit jealous that Crocker got to write the first book on women's rights. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And technically, Katie Stanton never wrote that book, even in her generation. Uh, She never wrote that treatise on women's rights that Crocker did write in 1818. And so I think that anxiety of influence and maybe a little bit of intergenerational jealousy might have driven Katie Stanton to misrepresent Crocker and to dismiss her a bit in the history of women's suffrage. And I don't think that helped Crocker's later reception (laughs) because the influence of Katie Stanton has been vast on the history of feminism, especially in the United States. So what were Crocker's views on marriage and family? Marriage and family, I think, was uh, kind of a radical here. Uh, she One of the most interesting documents that I found when I was studying her reminiscences and traditions of Boston was this text called the North Square Creed. And together with my co-editor and co-author, Sarah L. Hauser, we were able to discover that this was probably a reference to not only her home neighborhood, North Square, but also to perhaps some of the symbolism of the Masonic tradition, and that this oath was probably for the men who were married to the women in her female Masonic lodge, St. Anne's Lodge. So this oath was meant to be taken by the husbands of the women who belonged to the lodge. And the oath made the men promise that they would obey and honor their wives in every way throughout the course of their lives. 
So in other words, the oath put the power in the hands of the women in marriage and made men basically agree and submit to that power. So I think that's a really powerful testimony to the way in which Crocker, although she often appeared conservative, traditional, maybe conventionally religious, in actuality was making powerful arguments for the empowerment of women within patriarchal institutions such as marriage. Yeah, that was incredibly radical for her day. Could you explain about Crocker's views on women in civil society and politics? Yes. As I mentioned earlier, I think that her representation of herself um, as a young woman supporting the Patriots' cause and the American Revolution suggests she thought women could do anything and should do anything in support of democracy and that women should have the same opportunities to support democratic government as men. And this would entail giving them the freedom to participate in the the full slate of activities associated with democratic citizenship. And this could could be anything. It could be, you know, um, putting your life at risk in a time of war, putting your life on the line to support the cause of, of, of justice itself. And so... So I think, again, Crocker was quite radical, because even if she herself did not smuggle those papers across the Charles River in support of the Patriot cause, even if that story is inflated in retrospect for effect, it's important to keep in mind what effect she wanted that story to have on readers, even to our present day. The effect is that we are meant to understand all women as capable of being fully citizens, and alongside their male counterparts. What legacies did Hannah Martha Crocker leave behind? I think the most important legacy that she left behind was not only the legacy of her now 200-year-old book on women's rights, the observations on the real rights of women, but maybe even deeper than that, the legacy of... Um, modeling for society and perhaps especially for other women, the power of putting one's ideas and life down on paper. She was a a great storyteller, uh, a exacting historian of her local culture and and politics of Boston, and she kept immaculate records um, and made sure they were preserved after she died. And as a result of that incredible effort as a kind of um, local historian, as a memoirist, uh, as a storyteller, as a philosopher and political theorist, she bequeathed to future generations the gift of her example, which is that people should never forget the, the power of preserving and print their ideas, no matter how crazy or odd or easily dismissed those ideas might seem in the present. Do you have any future study plans? Well, I I would love to get a hold of more of the manuscripts of Hannah Mather Crocker. I know they're out there, but it would take some time for me to dig them up, so to speak. I do know that there's a private collection out there held by descendants of the Crocker family. And I've had some correspondence with the anonymous owners of the collection, but I do know 
that there is a quite substantial private collection of correspondence and other manuscripts that has yet to be studied. And if I could ever have the chance to work with those papers, I would be so grateful because I'd be able to really unpack a bunch of puzzles about Crocker that remain to be solved. I'd like to know more about her St. Anne's Lodge, which is supposedly the first all-female Masonic Lodge in at least the United States. I'd love to know more about the school for uh, poor girls in the north end of Boston that she founded in the 1810s, how that worked, what girls she served, and uh, why the school ultimately closed. I'd like to know more about her personal life. She bore 10 children, seven of which lived into adulthood. I would love to know more about her family about her children and the fates of her children and grandchildren. I've done some of that genealogical research, but I've, I've hit some dead ends that haven't led me much further than, say, the um, 1840s. And so I'd love to know what happened next in the evolution of this uh, amazing American family that has roots in the, the earliest days of the settlement of Boston by the Puritans. So one of these days, I'll get access to that treasure trove of papers, I'm sure, and then I'd like to devote a year or two to sorting through them systematically for the sake of really understanding Crocker's pivotal yet still unrecognized place in the feminist canon. Yeah, sounds like very worthwhile work. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you so much, and I'm so grateful to have folks in Australia interested in Hannah Mather Crocker, and if anyone wants to contact me, you can find my email address on the University of Notre Dame's website in the Political Science Department. Right. Well, I've been speaking to Professor Elaine Hunt-Botting about Hannah Mather Crocker. That's all we have time for today. Hope you've been given plenty of food for thought, and stay tuned for Are You Looking at Me?